Exodus chapter 12. If you recall, if you were here last week, if you watched last week's message, we began a series. It's really an eight-part series, but yesterday was an introduction to the series on who is Jesus and looking at who Jesus is by looking at what he said concerning himself in the book of John when it comes to the seven I am sayings of Jesus. In the book of John we talked about last week, it's a unique gospel compared to the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic gospels. John is unlike the other three. It's very unique. And there are seven unique miracles or signs that uh, John, um, he, he curates, if you will, and writes in his gospel. There's seven messages or or uh, teachings that he has, and there's these seven I am say- sayings in the book of John. And if you recall, the, the real purpose in which John is writing the gospel, he says in the very last two verses of John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, the purpose for John writing the gospel to those who received that gospel 2,000 years ago is in 2,000 years ago, and those of us who read it today is, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The purpose for John's gospel was to declare who Jesus was as the Christ, as the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, and as the Son of God with the intent that you would come to believe upon him and have eternal life. And we asked two questions last week. The most important question, the first question to ask ourselves and really to ask an unbelieving world is, who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? To ask yourself, who is Jesus? And we can learn who Jesus is by looking at what he says concerning himself, what the scriptures say concerning him as to who he is. And last week, we, we, we firmly determined that Jesus is God. He's God incarnate. He, told, he said in John chapter 8, Before Abraham was, I am. From Exodus chapter 3, where God revealed himself in a burning bush to Moses. And Moses said, When I go to Pharaoh and I say, My God of my fathers says to deliver the people of Israel, What is your name? What do I tell them? He says, I am sent you. I am who I am. The Lord, Yahweh the Lord is my name. That is my name. I am who I am. And when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, he was saying, I am Yahweh. I am God incarnate. I am eternal. I'm self-sufficient. I, I am God incarnate. That's what Jesus was saying. But the second question, though, is, after you've determined who Jesus is, The second question is, what have you done with him? It's one thing to know that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Lord. You can affirm and believe all the creeds and things that are declared concerning Jesus. But what have you done with him? The gospel is a call to action. Not just to acknowledge the truths, but that the truths would take work and take root in your life. And it starts with, Belief in Jesus Christ as the Christ, as the Son of God, as your Savior, as your righteousness, as a propitiation for your sin, faith in Him, and then what does it bring into your life? It brings eternal life. It brings 
um, not just eternal life in the hereafter, but it brings life right now. It brings abundant life right now. A life without Christ, a lot of people don't realize it or they won't admit it. It's miserable. It's tumultuous. There's no peace. There's no goodness. There's no kindness. There's no love of God in your life. You, you think you struggle right now to walk in the love of God when you are a Christian. Just think how much of a struggle it is to walk in so-called love without Christ. You can't. You just really can't. And this world needs to see a love that is supernatural, a love that is of God. So we established those things last week as an introductory message to this series. So today we start on the first I am saying of Jesus, which is I am the bread of life. And that will be in John chapter 6. But we will start by giving ourselves some context and background from Exodus chapter 12 and 13. Look here at chapter 12. The previous uh, chapters, the, the ten plagues or the nine plagues have been um, exacted upon the people of Egypt because Pharaoh had hardened himself and would not release God's people. And then in chapter 11 of Exodus, the final and last plague, that is the death of the firstborn of all people and all livestock and all things that were in Egypt were destroyed, were taken, were killed. And only those who had the blood of a lamb, of the Passover lamb, put over the, the lentils and doorposts of their house, only then would the angel of death pass over them and not destroy them. And truly, if you think about it, if an Egyptian would have gotten word of, hey, the people of Israel are doing this, they've gotten this direction from God, and if you put blood over your doorpost in this particular way, you'll be saved. There were, there were prostitutes, there were sinners, there were alcoholics, there were drug addicts, there were adulterers, there were all kinds of sinful people inside those houses. There were. But because the blood was applied over that doorpost, the angel of death, the grace of God, by the blood, the grace of God covered those people and the angel of death passed over them. Not because those people were good or righteous, but because they were obedient to God's directive. Apply the blood. Apply the blood. And this is the feast of Passover that they begin to celebrate hereafter. Now look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 12. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your house. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And I failed to mention this before I read that. There, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and we're going to get to that in John chapter 6. It has significance in two ways which we draw from the Old Testament. The first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the unleavened bread that was eaten during the Passover feast and the seven days thereafter which is celebrated which is the Feast of Passover. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, one, one festival or feast that is very important to the Jews that was instituted in Egypt is the festival or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when he says, I'm the bread of life, they're immediately going to think about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're going to think about Exodus chapter 12. They're going to think about this feast which is instituted at the very beginning when the people of God were delivered from Pharaoh. And it's in this feast, go over to chapter 13, verse 3. 
And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Go down to verse 6. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast of the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. Now, you remember in the previous chapters in Exodus chapter 3, in Exodus chapter 3, where when God revealed himself to Moses, he said in the burning bush, he says, I have seen, I have heard, and I know the affliction and the cry and the travail of the people of God. And I'm going to come down and deliver them. I'm going to come down and deliver them. And, and Moses is saying, you're going to celebrate this feast. Look here at verse um, 8. And you shall tell your son, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. What God has done for me. And supremely, God has come down and condescended through the person of Jesus Christ. Where God took on human flesh. He did condescend throughout the ages. He did condescend to, prevent, to, uh, to deliver the people of, of, of Israel from Egypt. He did come down because he's touched by the feeling of our infirmities. And he loves his people, his covenant people. And he came down and he knew their affliction. He delivered them from Pharaoh. And he wanted to lead them and guide them because he loved them. And he wanted to use them to declare his name in all nations and allow them to be a blessing to all the earth so that these seed the seed of Abraham, Jesus, could come onto the scene and supremely God would come down to us and bless us by dying for our sins. And that's what Peter says when he preaches on the day of Pentecost. God has supremely blessed us by dying for our sins. And so when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, they're going to think about this, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're going to think about the Passover. They're going to think about this time that God came down and delivered us from Pharaoh by a mighty hand and he crushed all the gods of Egypt and our God our Lord is the true and living God and furthermore over in verses or chapter 16 go to chapter 16 verse 1 they've been delivered they cross the Red Sea they walk on dry land the Lord destroys the armies of Pharaoh that were pursuing Moses. The, chapter 15 is a song of Moses. And then in chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that they may test 
that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Verse 5. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they shall gather daily. Go to, down to verse 12. Trying to establish a good background and context before we go to our primary scripture. Verse 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at the evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of the dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Go to verse 31. Last two verses right here. And the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Verse 35. And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Does anybody know what the word manna means? It literally means what? Question mark. It's a, it's, it literally means what is it? What is it? And if you recall, I mentioned last week, Jesus, wherever Jesus was, wherever he went, whatever he did, whatever he said, he was always controversial and he always caused division. People were always asking, is he the one? Is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Could this be? Could this be? No, he can't be. No prophet comes from Galilee. If, if, we, know, if we know where the Messiah came from, then he's not the Messiah. And they have all these qualifications. They're trying to figure it out. Who are you? Who are you? We're trying to figure, figure you out. And much like the manna that came down from heaven, okay, much like the manna that came down from heaven, their first question was, what is this? What is this? We've never seen this before. And what did the scribes and Pharisees, what did they say about Jesus? We've never heard somebody who's spoken like this before. And the chief priest said, bring him to us, arrest him, towards the end of his ministry. And they said, we can't. So many of the people, the throngs of people, they like him, but he speaks unlike any other scribe or rabbi or Pharisee. He speaks as one with authority. We've never seen one like him before. Everywhere Jesus went, the question was, who is he? What is this? And that's exactly what manna means. What is this in the Hebrew language? It's derived from maybe from a, an Egyptian word. What is this? And Jesus is about to make a direct correlation as to who he is and what he came to do by alluding directly to the scripture that we just read. So go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This is a very long chapter. I, I'm, I'm going to try to, I'm going to skip around a bit. Okay, but I'm going to read some of the primary scriptures to give you the, a good understanding of what's going on. It's very likely that there's about a year's time between chapter 5 and chapter 6. At the beginning of chapter 5, he's in Jerusalem during the Passover. And in chapter 6, it's the Passover again. And it's likely it's a, a year later that... Um, John is discussing the events and the teachings that he's about 
to disclose to us in chapter 6. Now look here at verse 1 of chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Okay? Remember what I read in Exodus chapter 12? The unleavened bread that is eaten during the Passover, and right after the Passover is the feast of unleavened bread. It's a seven-day celebration where you eradicate all leaven out of your house, and you eat nothing but unleavened bread. And leaven represents sin. It represents sin, how that a little bit goes a long way, and it, and it expands, and it, it multiplies in your life. And this is right in the middle of Passover week. There's throngs of people following him. There's also crowds of people going and gathering together and traveling to Jerusalem. And Jesus is in the vicinity. It's a, it's a bustling time in Jerusalem, in Israel. Lots of people from out of town, from different places. It's all kinds of things going on. How many of you, you ever traveled during the holidays, during Christmas, during uh, Thanksgiving? There's, there's extra people on the road, isn't there? Pretty congested, isn't it? And it would be the same way with this. Um, a very festive environment and lots of extra people in the area. And it's in the context of all these people who've seen what he's doing, all these many people traveling on their way to Jerusalem. It's in the context of Passover. We know the context of unleavened bread or bread and its place it has in the Passover. And in verse 5, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, Where should we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. I think I read that 200 denarii is a year's worth of wages, I think, is what I read. Um, uh, and so 200 denarii is a lot. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is laid here who had... There was a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. And so all the people sit down. In Matthew, it tells us that he had compassion upon the people because they were wearied. He wanted to feed them. He wanted to take care of their temporary needs. Listen, God cares about meeting your needs. Jesus cares about you getting a job. He cares about having food on your table. He cares that you have clothes on your back. He cares that you have a roof over your head. God cares for your temporal, corporal needs. And we read that in Matthew chapter 6. We know that God takes care of the sparrow, the lily of the valley, neither toils nor spins, but God will raise it in wonderful beauty and majesty. You do not worry because worrying does not add one cubit to your stature. It doesn't do any good to you. Don't worry. Just seek God. Seek his righteousness. Seek his kingdom first. He'll take care of the rest. But God does care. He does care about meeting your needs. He cares about your bills being paid. He cares about your kids' stomachs being full. God is heartbroken by poverty and homelessness and those who are hungry across the world. God is moved and he has compassion upon those individuals. He really does. And that's why continuously uh, God is always for the underdog. He's always for the, the, those who are down and out. He always encourages those who, who are blessed to always look out for the poor, to always pull those up who are hurting and who are without. 
God cares. He cares about that. That's very important what I'm about to say. And so he, dis- he distributed to them this free bread and free fish. How many of you like free food? Yes, especially when you're a young man. High school, college age, free food. Oh, yes. I had a free meal today, as a matter of fact. We had, we had lunch for, with, with my grandmother, and the family were there. And my sweet mama, she paid for my meal. And I appreciate that. I had some gumbo at Floyd's. I appreciate that. And as often as I can, I, can I have lunch with my mom? Because I don't have to pay for it. I try to, she won't let me. I'm still her son. She wants to pay for it. I will let her do it every single time. Because who will not accept a free meal? Free food, especially when it's good. And so all of humanity is the same. We like food, and we like when it's free. And he gives this free food, and he multiplies it so much that there's 12 baskets of fragments. There's leftovers. It's not just refuge and garbage. It actually tells us there's leftovers. There's leftover uh, bits of of this fish and, and bread. And they take it. And look at verse 12. So they had their fill, and he said, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now remember, what have I been saying? The two questions. Who is Jesus and what will I do with him? Now they know an act of God has occurred. They know a miracle has occurred. They've just received heavenly food that God literally created from nothing. I mean, he had some, a little bit of barley loaves and, and fish, but he multiplied that. You can't do that. Nobody can duplicate that. Nobody can do that over again. He, he just multiplied and created from nothing all of this fish and bread, and the people recognized this man is from God. He is somebody. And that's a good direction to go, is it not? That's good. That's good to know. This, this man is of God. He's a righteous man. He's not doing the works by the power of the devil, and he does have power, just like the sorcerers. When Moses went before the sorcerers of Pharaoh, they duplicated up to a point the acts of God, but they couldn't duplicate everything. So the devil does have some power, but they recognize this is the power of God. This is a righteous man, and they say, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And what they're talking about is this. They're alluding directly back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and 15. Moses is not able to go into the, to the promised land. Moses is the mediator between the, the, the people of God and God with the, the Mosaic covenant and the law. Okay? He's led them. He's guided them for 40 years. And Moses tells the people. Here's what he tells them in Deuteronomy 18 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet just like me. This guy has just given us supernatural fruit, food that we've done no work for, just like the manna that fell down from heaven for 40 years, mediated by Moses, surely this is the one that Moses was speaking of. The prophet that's like me, who's going to come. They're on the right trail, okay? 
They're on, they're on the, the right scent, but they fall short. They fall short. They fall short as to the extent of Jesus' calling as the prophet, as the Messiah, as the Christ. This is truly the prophet. Last two verses. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. And here's where they miss it. And here's where we're going to see a problem that permeated these people's spirits and lives and attitudes and that permeates people's lives today in regards to their relationship to God. They wanted to take Jesus and set him up on a physical throne, overthrow Rome, and get this, I get free bread for as long as I get it, just like my ancestors did in the wilderness for 40 straight years. We get free food. He's going to overcome the Roman Empire. We're going to be delivered. And their whole thought process was not spiritual. It was all physical. It was all political. It was all earthly. And their view of the Messiah was only to a point. Yes, he's our deliverer, but they didn't see him as a spiritual deliverer. They didn't see him as one who was going to come and die for sins for them and make them righteous. They saw him as one who was going to help advance their desires and meet all their expectations. We're going to take you, we're going to put it upon ourselves, we're going to make you king. You're going to do this. You're going to do this for us. And their motivation was nothing but carnal and earthly motivation to take Jesus and to have him do this. They knew he was of God, but they were going to use Jesus for their own purposes. And that's further disclosed to us as you carry on. Um, look here at verses. So Jesus, uh, Jesus sends his disciples away. Jesus leaves. He goes up to the mountain by himself. He, he, he runs away from the people because he doesn't want them to take him and make him king. Uh, the, the disciples go across, back across the sea. Uh, there's a big storm. Jesus walks in the water. He gets in the boat. They're automatically across the sea. Then these 20,000 people, they think there was... 10 to 20,000 people, they realize Jesus is not over here. They go across the sea. They go looking for Jesus, okay? Look here at verse 24. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, is it good to seek Jesus? Yes. It's good to seek out Jesus. Both in, in, in this day and time, physically, Jesus is there. I want to seek him out. Just like the woman with an issue of blood, she sought out Jesus. Just like blind Bartimaeus, he sought out Jesus. Just like the Roman centurion, he sought out Jesus. I've heard of this man. He can help me. And they're seeking Jesus. But then we learn very quickly what their motivation is. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, verse 25, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, and here we come down to our main scriptures. I'm going to make some application. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. What was the purpose of the signs? The whole purpose of the signs were to point to, as John said in the very last verse, so that you may know that he is the Christ. 
He's the Son of God, and that believing in Him as the Christ, as the Son of God, you may have your sins forgiven and you may have eternal life. Not an eternal flow of free bread, but eternal life. And he says, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And so Jesus chastises, I mean, let me continue on. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. I think, did I say last week, 95 times the word believe is mentioned in John, the gospel of John, believe, believe, believe. There's a call to action to do something with Jesus. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our father ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. I'm coming down to the main text. I'm going to stop reading. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, they're wanting Jesus to do another sign. They're wanting him to do another supernatural work. They're probably wanting some free breakfast now. They're wanting some Captain Crunch, maybe some toast and jelly, maybe some eggs and bacon. They're wanting something free. And they say, what, what sign will you show us? What will you do? And in verse 30, they say, God did this through, through Moses. Okay? This amazing miracle. Now, what you did yesterday was pretty cool. But what God did back in, in, ex, in the Exodus and what he did for 40 years, that's amazing. They ate for 40 years. They ate this manna from heaven and quail. What are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do? Can you, can you do better than that? That's really what they're saying. Do something better. Do something greater. And the whole motivation is what? For us in a temporal, earthly sense. And Jesus responds, as I just read, the true bread comes from heaven, which comes from my Father, and he's saying, which is me, verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they saw, said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Last verse right here. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So, Jesus makes a direct allusion and using the word I am, as we looked at last week, what that means. I am the bread of life which comes down from heaven. Let me, take, let me just make four quick points here tonight. By saying that he is the bread of life which comes down from heaven, Jesus is first saying that he is essential for life. Throughout the Word of God, bread, and even in ancient times, bread is a staple food. In many other parts of the, the world, bread is a staple food. In our culture, bread is... How many of you like bread? My kids could eat a whole loaf of bread. They love it. Okay? 
Bread um, is a very, very basic dietary item throughout history and even today. And even a person can survive purely on bread and water. And bread has become so basic to, um, to the diet, especially in this day and time, that it became synonymous with a meal. So to break bread together meant we're going to go eat. We're going to go eat. And when he says, I am the bread of life, he's saying, I am essential for life. As essential as oxygen is for you to live, as essential as um, water is for you to live, as essential as nourishment from food is to, for you to live, I am essential. I'm not good enough just to be a good moral teacher. I'm not good enough just to be a prophet. I am I am the center of everything here. Everything starts and stops with me. Everything points to me. If you really knew who Moses was, Moses spoke of me and was pointing to me. I am essential in all of this. You cannot have the gospel. You cannot have salvation. You cannot have forgiveness of sins except Jesus be central to it all. Except the cross be central to it all. He's saying, I am the essential thing. Just as bread as your sustenance is the essential thing for you to live, I am essential. There's no life outside of him. I'm the central plan of salvation. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. There's nothing you can seek outside of me. And I mentioned C.S. Lewis's trilemma last week. Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And he can't be all three at the same time. What he said about himself, he said, I'm God. He was either a, a liar, he was either a lunatic, or he really is who he said he is. And what he is saying is, I am essential. I am the center of it all. You cannot have salvation, you can't have righteousness, you can't have anything except that I am there. I'm just essential as the oxygen you breathe into your body. Number two. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, which comes down from heaven, he is saying that he brings eternal life and not just physical. So, what I said earlier, does God care about your physical needs? Yes. If you need a job, pray about it. God will supply your needs. He cares for you. He doesn't want you to be starving. He, he, he hurts for us when we struggle and, and when we can't uh, meet the, the needs of life. He cares about that. But... These people in this story, they were only concerned about earthly food. They were only concerned about blessings that Jesus could give to them. They weren't seeking Jesus for Jesus. They were seeking Jesus for what he could give them. And that's what we see in modern Christianity today, don't we? The prosperity gospel. Jesus or God is nothing more than a means to get what you want. Blab it, grab it, name it, claim it. Health and wealth are yours because God revolves around you. It's man-made and man-centered. And Jesus comes at your beck and call. Jesus is your butler. And you say the right words, you give enough money to the right person, the right minister on TV, and God will bless you tenfold. And, and there, there are people who are preyed upon who give their money, but truly... The same lust and greed that's in that preacher is in that same person. 
And what motivates them to give is the same thing that motivates that preacher to tell them to give to them. They want to receive wealth and prosperity. But do they want Jesus? Do they desire Jesus? Are we seeking Jesus for him? He knows you have need, Matthew chapter 6. Even all the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your father knows you have need. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He'll take care of the rest. Seek him, then he'll take care of you. It's not the other way around. And so we don't have a Santa Claus in the sky. We write out our list and hand it to him. We just sit back and expect it to receive it. No. He is saying, I've come first and foremost to bring eternal life. Not an eternal supply of bread that you put in your belly. I'm here to give you eternal life. The, your, primary, your primary issue is not poverty. Your primary issue is not lack of education. Your primary issue is, is not homelessness. Your primary issue is brokenness because of sin. Your primary issue is your sinfulness and the wrath of God that abides upon you. And I've come to take the reproach upon myself. I've come that you may have eternal life, abundant life in me. He's trying to keep these Jews from thinking in, purely in the purely physical realm. They want to take him and put him up on a physical throne, but they don't want to put him on the throne of their hearts. And we see that today. And so he's contrasting what he brings as their Messiah with the bread he miraculously created the day before. That was physical bread that perishes, but he is spiritual bread that brings eternal life. Those people ate bread for 40 years, the spiritual bread, but they all died. You take me, you will always live because I give you spiritual eternal life. That's number two. Number three, by Jesus saying, I am the bread that comes down from heaven, he is saying, just as we established last week, he is reestablishing that he is divine. He's saying it all over again. I am, of, I am from my Father. I am from heaven. Who comes down from heaven? Angels do, and God does. Okay? And he's referencing God as his Father, making himself equal with God the Father. And the people catch on to this. In this right here, when he says, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven... For any person who says Jesus never made real claims that he was God, he did in, in John chapter 8, before Abraham I was, and he did just now because the people caught on to this. They immediately caught on to this, and there were some people who were upset about what Jesus just said. Look at verse 41. Then the Jews, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this... Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? They knew exactly what he was saying. He's equating himself with God. He's saying, I came down from heaven. And by saying that, he's saying, I am God. Now, if you recall, I read in Exodus chapter 16, verse 12, where God says, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. 
And here's God's intention. Listen to this. Here's God's intention in to supernaturally provide to them quail, meat, and bread for 40 years. He says, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So that you will know I am Yahweh. I am who I am. The eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient God. When you eat this bread, when you wake up every morning and you don't work for it and you go take it, it's so that you may know I am God. And when Jesus says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven, so that you may know I am the Lord your God. I am God incarnate. I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. And lastly, number four, when Jesus says, I am the bread that's come down from heaven, he is saying that only he satisfies and sustains. Only he satisfies and sustains the hungry heart of all of humanity. You want to know why you have alcoholism? You want to know why you have drug abuse? You want to know why you have pornography addiction? You want to know why you have uh, gambling problems? You want to know why you have eating disorders? It's because people are looking for satisfaction and fulfillment and ultimate happiness in anything. Anything they can get their hands on, they'll try it. While people give themselves continuously to their work, where they, to the point that they ignore their family because they feel like they have satisfaction in their career. Whatever it is. In social media, whatever it is, they pursue it with hopes that they can find happiness and be fulfilled in life. Every single, I don't care what culture, what tongue, what country you're in, that is in every single human being. Because we were created in the image of God and we were created to commune and have relationship with God and we will not be satisfied and fulfilled until that God-shaped hole is filled by only Him who can fill it. And not until a person comes to Christ will they be satisfied, will they be happy. And truly, God does bring happiness into your life. Not just joy, but happiness. Jesus said, if you do these things... Happy is he who does these things. There's a hunger in our souls that only he can satisfy. I quote C.S. Lewis one more time. This is brilliant. This is beautiful. Listen to this very closely. The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, Logically, that means there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, that means there is a such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If there's a desire within you, there must be something there that satisfies the desire in the natural realm. And here's the most quoted portion of this paragraph from his book, Mere Christianity. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so, I don't care who the person is and what kind of charade they have going on, and it doesn't matter how happy they may look on the outside, they're not satisfied. If they get the dream car, the dream house, the dream woman, the dream man, 
If, if they're drunk, if they're hot, whatever it is, you're not satisfied. Because the desire within every single person is truly communion with God. And if that desire is there, and you've tried everything else in this world, then it, logically it means then there must be something outside of this world that brings satisfaction and that fills this hole in my life. And so let me quote him again. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable, probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care. On the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. We're supposed to enjoy our family. We're supposed to enjoy food to a point. We're to enjoy sex in the, in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. We're to enjoy the blessings of God here and now. We're to enjoy them. But those enjoyments are not the fulfillment in themselves. They point to something greater is what he's saying. They point to the fact that thank God for them, but there's something more. There's something more. They're nearly a copy or echo or, or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. True satisfaction, through, true sustainment comes through Jesus Christ. There's a hunger in every person's soul to be satisfied or fulfilled or to be happy. But there's also another hunger in every person's soul or desire. There is a desire, first, to be happy, but secondly, every person wants to be righteous. You go to anybody, you go to anybody, and they will have a high opinion of themselves. You go to any person, you say, are you a good person? Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. Everybody wants to defend their righteousness. Because at the, the crux of it all is that they want to be justified by their own righteousness. And to say that I'm good is to say that I'm righteous. But the Bible says that you're not good. And so I'm desiring to be fulfilled while all the while justifying myself and esteeming myself to be righteous. But those who hunger and thirst after true righteousness, that is the righteousness found in Christ, then you'll be satisfied then you will be fulfilled because of Jesus' righteousness, who is the bread of life. I close right here. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I want you to know, here's the heart of Jesus. Here's the heart of the Father. He is always beckoning. God is always beckoning. And my task as a preacher and a minister should always be to beckon people to the cross. Beckon people to an altar. Beckon people to the presence of God. Call people. 
But too often we see in the Christian church, it's not beckoning, it's bludgeoning. It's bludgeoning. And Jesus, though he brings conviction to the heart, and he, he, he puts his finger on those things, it's not to bludgeon you and to condemn you and to cast you off. It's to call you closer to his bosom, closer to his presence, so that you will realize you're not satisfied, you're not sufficient in yourself outside of relationship in him. He's calling, he's beckoning, and he's saying, whoever comes, whosoever will come, come, come. We're gonna, you, you see in, in John chapter 7, during this fe uh, particular feast, he says, whosoever thirsts, come to me. Come to me, and rivers of living water will flow out of your belly. You'll never thirst again. You'll never hunger again. Come to me. Jesus is never pushing anybody away. Never. For the Son of Man did not come to condemn, but to save. We're already condemned. We already uh, have the wrath of God because we've condemned ourselves. That's the state that we're in. But he says, come. And what is the, what is the, what is the, the primary intent? And whoever believes, they will have this bread. And they shall never die. They shall never hunger. They shall never thirst. He makes an invitation to us, not just at conversion, but right now. Every single moment of your life, Jesus loves you. He desires intimate relationship with you. He wants to be your pure source of satisfaction and fulfillment that all of your hunger and thirst in this life, it can only be satisfied by him. It really can. And people distract themselves with all kinds of activity and they pursue all kinds of things that in the end it will be burned up. It will not be there to comfort them in the end on their deathbed. But life in Christ is eternal life. And he's, he ends right here, verse 37. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. You come to me. I'll care for you. I'll meet your needs, both temporary and spiritual. Let me be your source for everything. I am the bread which comes down from heaven. Everything else will leave you wanting and empty. Only Jesus satisfied because he is God incarnate. He's the bread that came down from heaven. He is central. He is essential to everything in this life. He is the missing piece. Who is this man? He is God who has come down to deliver us from our sin and to bring joy into our lives. Amen? Stand with me. Let's close in prayer.